Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kiev. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kiev, and I can report Kiev stands strong. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Good evening and welcome to the British Embassy here in Washington, D.C. I'm David Knowles and I've been the host of Ukraine The Latest for the past 18 months. It's a great pleasure to see so many people here and finally to put some faces to the emails we receive and the downloads we can also see on our statistics every day. So thank you so much. We know so many of you have travelled so far to be here tonight and we're so thankful and appreciative of you listening day in and day out. It's been quite an extraordinary 18 months for all of us at The Telegraph across the newsroom. It's been a whole newsroom effort bringing you this podcast every day from the foreign desk to the news desk, the business desk, you name it. I've badgered every single one every single day when something in their patch has turned up. For myself and for Dom as well, we've travelled to Ukraine, we've seen the beauty of the country, we've talked to the people there from Lviv to Kiev to Kharkiv to Kramatorsk and It's quite astonishing to see you all and know that for so much of the time we were speaking to you when we were there and trying to get across what we were seeing. And to echo the remarks we heard just then, this podcast is not like other podcasts. We're talking about potentially one of the worst things, the most significant things the world has seen in the past 50 years. We need to temper our enthusiasm with sensitivity, our passion with kindness, and our interest in the events with solidarity. This is not a series on Netflix, it's not a video game, it's not even a good story for us journalists, it's people's lives every day, day in, day out, even today, right now. The stakes couldn't be higher for Ukraine, for democracy and the entire world. Thank you so much for listening. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we go to our first question, I would just ask our panel to introduce themselves. So Dom, why don't you start? Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. I'm Dom Nichols. I'm the Associate Editor for Defence at The Telegraph. I was in the Army for 23 years until 2015 and then uh, jumped to the dark side of journalism. And I've been at The Telegraph for five years. Hello, I'm Kimberly Kagan. I'm the founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, We're a nonprofit organization and our mission uh, is to help you 
the educated public of a democracy understand the truth in conflict zones. Uh, we create the daily maps that many of you use and view and do intelligence from unclassified sources uh, about the war in Ukraine, issuing a daily update every day since before the war began. I'm Elliot Cohen. I uh, hold the chair in strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies at Research institution here in Washington. I'm also a professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, where I was the, uh, the dean for a number of years. I've traveled to Ukraine now a number of times, had the honor of meeting President Zelensky, uh, and I've written a lot about uh, the war, particularly for the Atlantic. And I am, like uh, most of you, a devoted listener to Ukraine the Latest. And I'm Francis Dernley, assistant comment editor at The Telegraph. My background prior to working in journalism was I used to be uh, in politics, not in the sort of partisan sense, but I used to work for a member of parliament as his chief of staff, and he was involved in the prime minister's policy board at the time. So uh, I used to be in academia before that, so academia, politics, and then somehow I fell into journalism. Well, Dom, let's as always, start with you. Um, We start our podcast usually with you giving us the rundown of the latest news in Ukraine. You've done that for 18 months. We've heard about the start of the invasion, the defence of Kyiv, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the Russian winter offensive, and now the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the south and in the east. Could you summarise where you think we are in September 2023? Yeah, so I think we are now entering the third war of this uh, since the full-scale invasion. So the first few well, the first few days and the first few weeks when Putin thought he could just rush into Kyiv and um, decapitate the leadership, and that would be it. Didn't work. Um, I think largely because Hostomol airfield was not taken. I think that was absolutely critical. Will, books will be written about that. Had Hostomol fallen in the first few hours, I think it might have been a very, very different story. But these first few weeks when essentially Russia had five different armies going on there. Something in the north, something in the centre, something in the south. The navy were wobbling around doing their thing and the air force was buzzing about. It wasn't, it wasn't coordinated at all and they weren't able to push through into uh, Kiev and the major population and power hubs of business and society. So that lasted for the first few weeks. They were pushed back. They, they'd decided to, to remove themselves from the north and then we had this slow transition which included... I mean, it's not always slow. There are some very fast parts as well. But this slow transition to where we are today, which included the, the push through the north by, uh, by Ukraine, push back through Kharkiv and down in the south through Hezon. But the, the line then sort of solidified and it looks as if Putin was willing to try and just hang on to that land bridge, sit behind the defensive line. So forget all the nonsense about Nazis and drug dealers and X, Y and Z. And he was just after the land bridge. And I think they then transitioned onto the defensive. And that's why they've put so much time and effort into the last few months of of making those defences, particularly in the south, as hard as we can now see them to be to try and crack through. And I think we're now transitioning to the third war, which is the who can stay there the longest war. So it's, it's back into industry and society and who can keep going, who can who can maintain that tempo of producing trained people and, and equipment, put them all together, you make a capability. And I think we're now seeing the longer-term strategy. Putin still hasn't 
relinquish any of his maximalist aims. He wants to take over the whole country. But I don't think that is possible anymore. I think he's trying now to just last out Ukraine and the international community's support for Ukraine to see uh, if he can stumble through to probably the US elections later next year to then see if there's a, if there's a, a, a crack in the international support and everyone loses interest and, and they and sort of sue for peace along the frozen, as he would wish it to be, the frozen lines as they are today. So I think we're now entering the, the proper industrial stage of this war and the attritional grind of who can just stay there the longest. And I, I don't know which way, which way that will go. We'll talk later about how solid or otherwise the external support for Ukraine is at the moment, in my opinion, in our opinion. But um, it's by no means a done deal that the lines are going to stay where they are. I think Ukraine have the great ability. They do have the ability to eject all of Russian forces from their, from their country. But, and, and there are many avenues you can take this but down. You know, how, how, will they be able to stay in the fight for long enough? Will they be able to generate the combat power to do that? Will they be able to resist the, the industrial might of Russia? on its own, but also now looking for friends in North Korea, China, Iran, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I don't think there's going to be a huge change in the lines for the next next few months at least, especially as we go into winter. I think winter will kill an awful lot of Russians in the trenches. I think Ukraine are better at rotating their units through. So it's, it's going to be no less violent and costly, but I don't think the lines are going to change very much for the next few months. Whether or not that will allow any great breakthrough next year is is what we're here to discuss and debate. But I think, yes, we're now into that third stage of the war. Who can, who can stay in the fight for the longest? Thanks, Dom. We've heard the name of Vladimir Putin, I think, over 10 times already. So, Francis, can I go to you? We've talked many times on the podcast about the anxiety among Western governments if Putin were to be overthrown in events maybe similar to Plagozhin's mutiny. Why should and why does the West fear Putin's overthrow? Well, very simply, I think it's better the devil you know. But in my own view, why would you want to be dealing with the devil? We know that Putin is a highly capable operator. He made his career by understanding the weaknesses in the West. We tend to forget this, but that was his primary aim in his former role. And he has proven effective in understanding how far to probe the West, There were warning signs over many, many years. Georgia was a red flag. Of course, the invasion and annexation of Crimea was a red flag. He knew how far to push. And he's, of course, made a huge miscalculation when it comes to Ukraine. Yet he is, I still think, a pretty effective operator, despite the fact that he has been shocked, I think, by the resistance that Ukraine has resisted. So with that said, I do not understand why the West is so hesitant, really, to see him gone and see pressure put increasingly on him politically, because he is so effective. And I think it's also this idea that he would be succeeded by somebody who is more, uh, is worse, is more dangerous, I think is uh, ahistorical in the Russian context. If one looks at Russian history, you see that usually if there is some kind of coup or revolution in Russia, the primary focus, and this is, by the way, a historical lesson, not just in Russia, in many, many other contexts too. What one sees is the priority for that new leader is the securing of power at home in the domestic sphere. 
your focus is not on foreign wars. You, would, you bring the troops back, you, drink, you, you, you secure yourself at home. And so I think the most likely outcome, if you were to see, and I'm not saying this is likely, unfortunately, but if you were to see a figure emerge who uh, was to overthrow or to seriously challenge Putin, uh, who was successful in that, then his priority or her priority, but let's face it, in Russia, it's more likely to be a he, uh, would be to secure himself at home and he would quite rapidly withdraw from Ukraine. And I think if we really are serious about how dangerous and how uh, the, the threat thrown by the war in Ukraine is and how egregious it is, then I think that personally that that should be a Western priority. But I think in that I'm a minority. Thank you, Francis. Kim Kagan, can I come to you? You've heard Dom's analysis talking us through the full-scale invasion to now. What would you like to add to what he said? And where do you see this, this war going in the next few months into fall and into winter? Thank you very much. First, war is the use of the organized, purposeful use of force to achieve a political objective. And Putin has organized his force uh, and is purposefully using it to overthrow the government of Ukraine and, and a democratic regime in Ukraine and subsume Ukraine into Russia. It is a maximalist objective. It remains unchanged. The objective that Putin had at the outset of the war remains Putin's objective today. And that is important because Putin is engaged in the same enterprise as on day one. And I think it is very important to say that the war that he is conducting is brutal. It is illegal. And it is genocidal. It seeks to wipe Ukraine away, uh, the language, culture, people, and polity. And so when we think about where is this war and how will it end, we need to recognize that Putin has no intent to end this war. He has every intent to win this war. And by winning, we mean, and he means, occupying and subsuming Ukraine. And therefore, we uh, in the West and those who are in Ukraine need to recognize that we need to deprive Putin of his capability to fight. Because as long as he has that capability, he will continue to pursue this aim. And he may continue to pursue this aim even after he loses this capability in the sense that he may and Russian elites may and probably will continue to seek the destruction of Ukraine until and unless Ukraine defeats the Russian armed forces on the battlefield and secures its territory with a formidable armed force that is in some way backed by the West, by Europe, by NATO, by global and democratic countries, and can actually help to guarantee, Ukraine must be able to guarantee its own security in the face of future Russian aggression. That is a challenge, of course, uh, for the Ukrainians to achieve, but it is still possible. The war as it is unfolding is still winnable by Ukraine. Ukraine can liberate its people and its territory. 
Uh, the war as we see it right now is slow moving. That is a phase of this war. And it is likely to be temporary. We are observing not a stalemate, but positional war on the southern front. Uh, and the Ukrainians are trying very hard uh, to advance through the thick lines of defenses that the Russians established in the winter and spring of this year while the Ukrainians rebuilt their, their forces and combat power and get themselves uh, to within artillery range of the key line of supply that connects Russia to Crimea. Uh, and I think the Ukrainians will actually get close to that line this winter, uh, and I think the Russians are going to have a problem. But there must be a successive operation, a follow-on counteroffensive uh, that the Ukrainians can pursue in the spring. We've talked a little bit then about what Russian victory looks like with Putin's maximalist aims. Um, can we talk, Elliot, can you talk a little bit about what how Ukraine might define victory. And you mentioned you met Zelensky. We've talked a lot about Putin. What was your experience meeting Vladimir Zelensky? So uh, that was uh, on my first visit to Ukraine about a year ago. And I can't say there was anything surprising in that the way he presents in a small meeting is quite similar to how he presents publicly. I mean, you had, I suppose the things that struck me most about him is first he looked like he was in good shape, which which is critical, you know. there can be nothing more taxing both physically and psychologically and spiritually than leading a country in a desperate war. And he looked like a guy who was getting enough sleep, uh, who was working out and, you know, was fully in command. And I think that's, uh, you know, that, that's a great advantage to them. Very good sense of humor and unusually for any politician, he devoted as much time to listening as to talking. And so I came away, you know, I expected to be impressed, and I was. I came away even more impressed. To your question about what does victory look like for Ukraine, well, I, you know, I think they've defined it very clearly in one way as the expulsion of Russian forces from uh, not just the territories that were occupied since February 24th of uh, uh, 2022, but going back to 2014. And I think one point that's sometimes lost in the West is we we sometimes think of this as a war that began on that February 22nd. The Ukrainians view it as a war that began in 2014. Of course, the, the, the other thing we have to remember is I think Vladimir Putin views it as a war that began in 1990 or 1991. And those, those ways of framing when the war began are really critical, I think, for framing the strategic picture. But beyond that, I think for Ukraine, the struggles for a viable society, in one way, they very much have that because uh, one of the features of the war has been this incredible mobilization of Ukrainian civil society. And it's not just you know, Zelensky trying to root out corruption. I think uh, there's a movement within the society to make it a, a country different from the one that it was before. But they also face tremendous challenges, not just from the occupied parts of their territory, not just from the physical losses and the people who've been wounded and so forth. A large chunk of their population is displaced and is, uh, and I think as you you know, the podcast has mentioned, is dispersed overseas and are making lives for themselves. And so they have an interest in bringing the war to an end as quickly as they can 
so those people will come home. Then the last thing is arrangements for their future. And uh, I very much agree with uh, my, my friend and, and colleague, uh, Kim Kagan. This is probably not the end. I mean, we're dealing with a very different Russia, I think, even than the one before 2022. It will be, it probably try again in some way. And so the question is, what are the guarantees of Ukrainian security? Well, one is, it's already the largest, most experienced army in Europe. But I think the other really has to be its integration uh, into NATO. And I believe that the other possibilities that people have put out there of security guarantees, things of that nature, don't work. Um, And that what we need to be thinking now is about how do you get Ukraine into NATO? Because that's the only security guarantee in Europe that has ever worked is NATO membership. You know, the Russians, the Russians have not dared to throw a punch at, at least using overt means, at places like Shushov, which is where the Poles transship a lot of the, uh, the military, most of the military hardware that goes into Ukraine. And that's a, that's a difficult task. We have, last thing I'll just say on that one, there is a major summit coming up in Washington. Uh, this is, of course, a major anniversary of the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty. Uh, and that would be the moment to really lay out a very, very clear roadmap, uh, not with you know, broad statements like when they meet the criteria without defining the criteria, uh, which is what diplomats sometimes do, with all due respect. Um, but to actually, I, I was one for a couple of years, so I, I plead guilty too. But really a very clear roadmap, making clear that Ukraine, yes, not only that as a general statement of intent, but here is a timeline which will bring Ukraine into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Well, that, that I think gets us on to talking about Western support for Ukraine. Can I ask just the whole panel, really, have you been surprised by the level of support that we've seen over the past 18 months? Don, would you like to start? Have I been surprised? Um, I think I've been surprised at the fragility. I mean, I know... Mr. Macron has had some, uh, some some issues, shall we say? I mean, he may have uh, he may have been looking to get more out of this, or as much out of this domestically as as just for doing the doing the right thing. But you know, the French are great allies. Okay, they are terrific people. They're steadfast allies. So it's good and healthy that we can all have have the occasional falling out. This is what Putin doesn't understand that we can all be friends. And still say, look, buddy, I think you got that bit wrong. Actually, you know, we need to have a have a conversation. That's not that's not a sign of division. That's a sign of a healthy democracy. So I've not been surprised that that, that everyone has most most have stood up. We've got a few outliers, Hungary, for example, and a few others with, that have got some domestic concerns they need to think about, for, or they are thinking about first. But I've been surprised, I think, at how fragile it was. I think it took real impetus by. Lloyd Austin, U.S. Secretary of Defense, Ben Wallace as well, really weighing in and saying, right, come on, then let's go. And those, those galvanizing influences. Now, you would, you would think that politicians at the, at the top of their game in the positions they are, there would be enough personalities around the place. But I just wonder if it had been, if it had been other people. I, mean, I don't know Lloyd Austin. Met him once, but I don't, I don't know him at all. I've met Ben Wallace many, many times, and um, he's a force of nature. 
so I'm not surprised that he was able to, to get people going. But if they hadn't been there, I, I just wonder if, the, if there would have been a bit of stodge, too many people just sitting back to think, well, I'll just see how this goes before I actually kind of you know, commit all in. So not surprised that we are here now in the next Ramstein, as Elliot says, next element of the Ramstein process, I think it's either next week or the week after, back in Ramstein, I believe. Um, 50 plus nations now. And it's great. They'll turn up and they bring all the kit and pledge a load of money. It's just a kind of a, a rolling program of, of goodwill. But I, I don't think we should take it for granted that that was always going to be the case if there hadn't been a small number of very animated and energised people who were prepared to, to put, their, put a lot of political capital into this. Um, is that a politician's answer? Is it a bit of both? <laughs> Um, if I could, David, I would, I would echo Don's sentiments on that. I think certain figures were absolutely critical in Western governments, just as Zelensky's role was absolutely critical in persuading the West, the world, uh, to a degree, to come to Ukraine's aid. I wasn't necessarily shocked that once the impetus was there, that countries came in behind Ukraine. I, it sort of reminded me a little bit of Pearl Harbor and that idea that, yes, you know, America was believed to be one thing, but the Japanese ambassador knew that you awake a sleeping dragon, a sleeping giant, if you do certain things. And I think there is a, a fundamental belief in Europe that when push comes to shove, there are certain things that are beyond the pale. So in that sense, I wasn't surprised, but I'll tell you what has surprised me, which is that we have learnt, you have learnt by listening to us, how bad things really are in Ukraine. The war crimes are far worse than I thought I would ever see in my lifetime on European soil, particularly the kidnapping of children, but also the kind of crimes we've seen at Butcher and Irpin. And what has shocked me is that the more we have learned, the, it seems that the more people have almost become numb to it and have sought to switch off from it. And I speak about that with people I know in political circles and even in journalism. And I think in part it's because, you know, it's been going on a long time and, and to, to a degree that the agenda moves on. But I also think there's something deeper psychologically in play, which is the truth is so terrible and so morally stark that it becomes easier to ignore it than to confront it. And I think that is a shameful thing to admit is happening on quite a universal scale. And yet I think it is happening. And I think it is something that needs to be addressed. And I think it should be the responsibilities of politicians around Europe to be talking much more eloquently and in, with much more visual evidence of what has been occurring in Ukraine. Because, and just if I may say one more thing, David, I'll never forget the early shift I came in on the day after the invasion had began and in the subsequent days, we get rushes coming in of photography taken around the world. Uh, and a lot of them are not publishable. But we as editors, we look at them, we see them, and we're making decisions about what will go in the paper. I don't, but I'm in the meetings where people are deciding those things. And if you could see some of the photographs that I've seen of people dressed in the clothes we're wearing here today being bundled in pits, children, men, women in their 20s, I don't think we would get this hand-wringing that we see. And yet, unfortunately, it's not out there in the public consciousness. And until it is, I am worried.
So let me be, I guess in some ways, a little bit more positive. I was astonished, and I remain astonished at the level of support that Ukraine has gotten, even though I've been very critical of our government for not doing enough and not doing it fast enough. And the reason I say that is, it's always the case that there's a, a small group of leaders who, you know, lead. But we've done this really in the absence of any great political leadership. I, I absolutely agree about Ben Wallace. I actually give Boris Johnson a lot of credit, and I know he's not always the flavor of the month in the UK. But I give him, I give him and whatever his other faults, I give him a lot of credit. No, President Biden has yet to give a speech to the American people saying this is why this matters. And yet, you know, you look at the size of these packages that we've uh, delivered. If you look at the fact that you have Asian powers engaged in a variety of ways in this, that we have sustained this, this is not what I would have predicted. I would not have predicted the Germans saying, yes, we will disentangle ourselves from Russian oil and natural gas. I could go on and on. I think there are, there are a number of people who deserve credit. I would also point to these Europeans. I think the Poles, the Finns, the Est- little Estonia, you know, showed remarkable leadership. I, I mean, I agree with you, Francis, uh, that there is a danger of people being numb. You know, unfortunately, I'm fairly steeped in Holocaust history, so I don't, I, can I say that I'm terribly surprised? I can't. What did surprise me most, has surprised me most about that is the kind of pervasive depravity of the Russian forces in Ukraine, that this is, this is not just one bad guy. This is not just some troops out of control. This, the, you know, the atrocities are committed by everybody. And it, it, the, I, think it, I, I don't think we have processed what that means for the country that we will be dealing with uh, in, into the future. But, you know, we, we shouldn't take a knee. We shouldn't uh, pat ourselves on the back. But, but I think we should recognize that this has been quite remarkable. It's not what we did in 2007 over Georgia, 2008 rather. It's not what we did in 2014. Let's face it, it's not what we did for, in Czechoslovakia in 1938. You know, this was not, no Americans or West Europeans or Japanese or Koreans were killed when the Russians rolled in. This was Ukraine, a country about which we knew very little, uh, to coin a phrase. Uh, and that was far, far away. And yet people have, have been willing to, to rally around. And I think that says something very good about liberal democracies. And, you know, we're, we're, we've been in a period where for very good reasons, particularly in my own country, uh, you know, we've worried about our institutions and we've worried about the ideals that you know, our two countries share. Um, and that, you know, this country really was built on. And I think, you know, we should take some pride in the fact, well, actually, it turns out some of that stuff is, you know, is still there and still animates the things that we do. Thank you so much, Elliot. And thanks, Francis, also for raising the, the issue of the atrocities and war crimes uh, that the Russians are perpetrating. Um, I think that it is important to see in them, of course, the human depravity, but it is also important to see in them the organized and purposeful use of violence uh, against women, against children, the extermination of civilians. That is actually 
executed consistently in different parts of Russian-occupied Ukraine and recognize uh, that that is a systematic, organized, and militarized use of violence against civilians rather than the depravity, simply, of soldiers gone astray. That is important for us to recognize uh, because every day behind the lines that the Russians occupy, there are people who are experiencing what was experienced in Bucha or what is or had been experienced in parts of Mariupol. And so when we think about what lies ahead and the hard fight that lies ahead for Ukraine, I think it's important uh, that we think about, of course, some of the geopolitical issues, but we're not talking about Ukraine liberating its territory. It's about liberating people, free people who are actually being abused and oppressed. It's about bringing home uh, Ukrainian children who have been deliberately abducted, at least apparently deliberately abducted, uh, by Russian authorities for the purpose of their re-education and re-acculturation into a Russian language and society and culture. Those are acts that uh, within the genocide conventions constitute genocide. And I think it's very important actually to state that because we as moral uh, human beings who have an experience of freedom and independence owe it to those uh, who do not to recognize what we have and what they are deprived of and what others are fighting to give them. But I think it's also important, if I may, to say that one of the things that strikes me about this war is the extraordinary clarity that it has brought to many about the international situation, uh, the world that we're in. If, in fact, an aggressive bully can simply invade a neighboring sovereign state for the purpose of destroying that state and removing it from the map and the state system. If that happens in one state and the United States or Europe or the United Kingdom actually stand by and watch, it can actually happen anywhere. And I think one of the reasons why we have seen such clarity of purpose in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in NATO, uh, and with our allies afar, such as the, the Japanese, is that, in fact, what is at stake here in Ukraine is not simply about Ukraine. It's about the geopolitical order in which we live uh, and whether any aggressor can overturn that order by force. Systemic and systematic violence, cruelty, murder towards civilians. Dom, as a soldier, what are your reflections and thoughts on what's being perpetrated by the Russian military? Uh, well, I, I remember a, a comment early on in the uh, in our reporting. Actually, it was on on the pod, one of our our contributors, and it was just we look back now and it was just loose language. I mean, it was well well meaning, but we just just used the wrong just used the wrong words. And um, one of our friends and colleagues said we was talking about the atrocities in Butcher and Irpin who that were just coming to light, and made some comment like. Um, of course, you see this in every war, or, or that's what happens when soldiers you know, meet on the battlefield. And it wasn't 
it was loose and I thought, oh, I just need to, that's not right. And so I made a point, I was, I was away that day, I was listening. When we're not on, we're all told, our producers say, look, just detach yourself, you've got to go and rest your head, go and do something else. It's like, no, I can't, I'm going to listen in. So that's why you see my little, my little avatar, whatever it's called, just popping up every now and again, but, but um, I'm lurking in the background. And so the next time I was on, I, I sort of picked up on that and I said, well, no, no, it's not. It doesn't have to be that way. Any military force or every military force should have a moral core. If you're in the business of being prepared to lose your life for um, values and, and orders and what have you, and you are equally willing to take other life, then you need to have a very strong moral centre and understand what you're, what you're dealing with there because these, these are not minor playthings you can just dabble with. And so it doesn't happen in every war. It doesn't have to happen in every war. There are, I mean, you can look at the Second World War. There are many, many examples of very honourable action uh, from when combatants meet on the battlefield. That's why the, the Geneva Conventions sort of codified these things. Um, but th- this, this was happening beforehand anyway, before they were written down. Um, it is that measure of, even in the darkest times when you are, when you are trying to kill the enemy, you have to hang on to your measure of humanity such that if there's, a, if there's an opportunity to express that humanity, you take it and you, and you um, give succour to those that are no longer combatants for whatever reason. Um, you, even when the red mist is descended, you have to be able to hang on to that, that central humanity because without that, what's, what's the point? What are you fighting for? Who are you? And so not every military is like that, and not every person in every military is like that. There will always be the opportunity for that to to break out and for the worst of humanity to be exposed, and war thrives on that. So if if, if we are if you either have that kind of personality or we are all you know all have moments of weakness, war will just lap that up and that will you know drag it out of you. And so I can understand why it happens, but I I thought that phrase that. Oh, this, this always happens when soldiers meet on the battlefield. It was just a bit too, a bit too sweeping. It doesn't have to. There is, no matter how dark the times, there's, there's always an opportunity to express humanity to your to your common man, even if that you know if that person had been your or is your enemy. And it's it's what you do in that moment, whether or not you take the opportunity or, or you don't. And I think that that has been shown to stark relief in this. In this war, I think systematically, as we've heard, I think systematically the Russian forces just don't have that moral core. They, they, there's a void there. They don't. They don't value life as as most others do, and I think they they have been brutalised as a society such that when you then take those people and give them guns and, and whatever and, and let them loose, then these it's more these elements are more readily available. They come out more, more easily. So I, I've also been shocked. I wasn't, you know, we've not seen the Russian military in action so close. You know, it was there in, in the Chechen wars, you know. So we knew it was, we knew it was there. We knew the, the, the capability was there. We've seen it in our own army, uh, the British army in, in Iraq. Various people have been held to account for, for troubling aspects there. Illegal aspects, murder, you know, I'm not trying to gloss over it. Same in the US forces, same in every forces. So there is always a framework of being held to account. But that, that, just, that just seems to be absent. That moral core, that moral framework seems to be absent from the Russian army and therefore 
it does allow the, the, the worst elements of humanity to, to, to come forward. I mean, this, we, we haven't seen the end of this. When more territories are liberated, th these stories will be, um, there'll be more of them, I'm afraid, I think. Thanks, Dom Francis. I, I just had one very, very brief thing I just wanted to add to that, which is that I think speaking sort of with my historian hat on, for a very, very long time, the understanding of the Soviet-Russian atrocities committed on the Eastern Front, and particularly in Berlin, uh, was understood as being a consequence of the atrocities committed by the Wehrmacht, the Einsatzgruppen, uh, on the Eastern Front. And I say justified, I mean, none of this is justifiable, but what I mean is that it was meant to be a sort of revenge for the crimes that had been committed against them. And I think one of the reassessments one sees as a consequence of this war is historians, experts, thinking again and saying, well, actually, maybe there is something more culturally systemic in the Russian armed forces, that this is not merely something that can be explained away by the particular horrors of the Second World War that enabled people to be able to treat the German civilian population as brutally as the Russians did, that this is actually something much deeper than that. And I think that's a very uncomfortable thing to confront and to talk about, but I think that it's something that historians, experts are now having to think very seriously about. Elliot Cohn, would you agree with Francis there? Yeah, I think, it's, um, I think it is true. And it's, you know, if you... Uh, not many people in the West study the Russian conquest of Central Asia. It was extremely brutal. And it has been a, a, a feature of Russian military behavior over a long period of time. But I think that in a way points to a larger issue, which is... Stepping back a bit, uh, you know, what we're seeing is in many ways a revival of the Russian imperial project. And you even hear people quoting, you know, 19th century czarist generals and politicians saying Russia has no borders and things, things of that nature. And so and that's something we're going to need to think about. Um, not just the Ukrainians have to think about that. They obviously will. But we have to think about that. That's the Russia that we're dealing with. And again, I, I would say this, that was not the Russia that we were dealing with for the most part in the, from the early 90s on. If I could, I'd like to just follow on from one thing, very important point that Kim made about the kind of larger geopolitical significance and implications of this. I just got back from a week in Taiwan with a small delegation. We met with President Tsai, you know, just about all the senior officials, presidential candidates, and so on. It was fascinating to me is there, there are people in the United States say, well, you know, we should be concentrating on the main opponent, China, sort of building up Taiwan to help them defend themselves, let the Europeans worry about uh, Ukraine, and it's a kind of phony sort of strategic reasoning in my view. What was fascinating was the Taiwanese leaders say, it is so important that you support Ukraine. That is, that is important for our security, and one even said, Look, if it's a choice between sending weapons to Ukraine and sending weapons to Taiwan, and we were about $14 billion backlogged in terms of weapons we're supposed to have, that they've paid for, that we're, we're supposed to have sent them, do it. And the reason, I, there are two reasons. One is they want the Chinese to really understand that, you know, you try something like that, and it's going to be a big, bloody mess. But I think they all, what they also see is... There is in Ukraine a demonstration of the resolve of the liberal democracies to stand by one of their own when confronted with a particularly brutal 
utterly unjustified form of aggression. So that, that larger point that Kim was making is absolutely right. There's a much larger global geopolitical significance of that, and that is why you know, the Koreans are indirectly actually uh, arming uh, Ukraine because they give us munitions and we give ours to the uh, Ukrainians, why the Japanese are on the ground, uh, particularly with reconstruction, why the Australians have delivered lethal military aid. You know, think about it. It's, it's quite remarkable. We obviously, you obviously focus on the European and American dimensions of this. There's a very interesting Asian dimension to this as well, and there's very good reason for it. We've talked a lot about support for Ukraine. Um, the most important strategic partner is the United States. So we have to ask you, how worried should supporters of Ukraine be about the next presidential election? The next presidential election season is indeed upon us. Uh, you're here in Washington, and uh, I understand you've decided to return to the UK uh, promptly, and uh, we, we don't blame you. Um, it, is, uh, it, it, it is going to be a mighty matchup. Um, look, I think it, it's very, first of all, it is vital uh, that the United States and Europe sustain support for Ukraine. This is not a war that the Ukrainians can win or would ever have won in this season. This is not a 2023 and it's over kind of war uh, or a 2024 and it's over kind of war. There is going to be a long and sustained requirement for the Ukrainians to defend themselves and the support uh, that the United States, that the United Kingdom and that NATO provide to Ukraine is, of course, vital to allowing the Ukrainians to continue this war and, very importantly, uh, to allowing the Ukrainians to remove the threat of the conventional Russian military from Europe. They are actually undermining, whittling away and diminishing the capacity, leadership uh, and depth of the Russian armed forces and its ability, the ability of the Russian armed forces to train more. The reason why I think that's uh, so important is that we're going to have a debate here in the United States and it's healthy. Uh, That's part of being in a free society and it's part of being in a democracy. Uh, But we mustn't imagine that the debate that we have here in the United States is without consequence in Ukraine, whether for those on the front lines or for those in the halls of power. And I hope that we can have our debate civilly, uh, effectively, and uh, perhaps quickly, uh, so that we can actually uh, focus on what we need to focus on, which is in part uh, the security of the United States, the security of the United Kingdom, of Europe, of Ukraine, and indeed of the free world. Well, so, um, you know, I know this is not a partisan, political partisan uh, podcast, but it is the Telegraph, for goodness sakes. Um, so I'll be very candid. Um, I'm politi- From a political point of view, you're looking at a homeless person. I served in two Republican administrations in reasonably senior uh, roles. Then I was one of the original never-Trumpers, so I'm basically kind of out. I think there is a serious problem if Donald Trump gets reelected. Now, there'll be serious problems for American democracy if Donald Trump gets reelected, in my view. 
Um, I don't think on balance that's the most likely outcome. But even if he is elected, I am not sure that it's a given that he simply you know, cuts Ukraine off without a dime. This is not a man who is overly committed to consistency as a political virtue. <laughs> and, and I also think that it is important to remember that although the, you know, the, the members of the Republican Party who get all the attention are you know, the people who are really at one end of the political and psychological spectrum. Um, you know, the, the majority are people you never hear of. You know, Michael McCall and, you know, Senator Wicker, people like that, who actually have been consistent in supporting Ukraine. I mean, the, there, there is a substantial minority, undoubtedly, in uh, the House and the Senate of the of the Republican conferences, which are opposed to aid to Ukraine, but but on balance, the Republican Party has been quite solid, in and the and the support has been quite bipartisan, and that again, I would reiterate, that's in the absence of President Biden really having laid out repeatedly a convincing case for why we should be doing any of this, which seems to me an essential part of political leadership. So, you know, I have all kinds of trepidations, but I think on the other hand, it's particularly important for foreign audiences to understand that even with the Republican Party where it is now, it is a divided party. And even, even if you get another run of President Trump, I think one can't simply assume that Ukraine gets cut off. Last thing I would just say is I, I do think, though, if I were a European uh, or Brit, not only sure whether those two completely overlap anymore, but that's... This is the Telegraph. And this is the Telegraph. Uh, um, You know, it is is a wake-up call, and in some ways has been taken as a wake-up call that Europe really has to be able to defend itself and uh, have its own serious arms industries, and it's not beyond European ability to do that. So there's a a small part of me which says... It's not such a bad thing that they're a little bit nervous about this. Very diplomatic words. Francis, I know you wanted to... <laughs> really? <laughs> I know you wanted to add something quickly, then we must move to our final thoughts. So, Francis Stone. Uh, very briefly, uh, I've, uh, I was very fortunate yesterday to interview Senator Romney, of course, very vocally passionate on the matter of Ukraine. Uh, that's gone out in the podcast today, and, and uh, you can watch the video version of it as well. He was also, I would say, perhaps keen to stress that there were very strong Republican voices who believed in Ukraine's cause. I also spoke to several other congressmen and women for the Republican Party, some on and off the record, so I won't say their names now, but you'll hear some on the podcast in due course, who were also very keen to stress their bipartisan support across, within the party and also uh, across the floor for Ukraine. So I think there is some room for optimism. I think, too, I also interviewed a former member of the Trump administration who said the same, that don't be shocked if there is sizable support for Ukraine. So I think that is the positive side. I think the negative side is that the longer that, uh, that Donald Trump is in the running, or indeed if he is the nominee, the more one sees his, these fellow candidates having to conform to some of his narratives in order to try and appeal to the base. And that means that when Ukraine is discussed 
it is discussed usually in a negative way because they're talking about the financial consequences of it for ordinary Americans. And so that, I think, it does have quite severe consequences. Well, the hour we've spent together has really run away, so I must ask you all just for your final thoughts. Um, we've talked about an awful lot, so I don't know what we want to focus on, if anything. Dom Nichols, would you like to start? Yeah, OK. Um, I think many people who have listened to the pod over the last year and a half will know my views on the United Nations. I'm not going to um, <laughs> go, go get on my... If I had a hobby horse, I'd get on it right now, but I'm not going to. However, I, I this afternoon, was interview, I, I interviewed Admiral John Kirby, who's the spokes, uh, spokesperson for the National Security Council in the White House. Massive faff to get into the White House. I mean, try if you want, but you've got to really want to get in there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it was all fine. We worked it out. We were talking about the United Nations, and I was saying how, whether we like it or not, and I don't like it, but whether we like it or not, Russia, as a P5 member, the United Nations Security Council, is a pillar of the international security framework. Just is. That framework, the UN and the UN Security Council, has also voted through sanctions, armed sanctions against North Korea. Russia is now talking to North Korea about being supplied arms and ammunition for its war in Ukraine. So I said to Admiral Kirby, put all those things together. Pillar of the international framework, sanctions against North Korea, that pillar talking to North Korea. Surely that shows the architecture is, is wrong, is not fit for purpose any longer. And he said, he said, yeah. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Um, and I said, because uh, I wasn't really expecting that, I hadn't got a follow-up question. <laughs> just to, uh, so I said, I said right, so, so do, you think, do you think it's time, does your administration think that it's time for... Um, reform of the uh, United Nations Security Council. And he went, yes. <laughs> I really haven't, wasn't expecting this. So I said, oh, right, so what, do you think more, the veto will go or there'll be more members on the Security Council or they'll all have to wear green on Wednesdays? Or I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And he said, he, he said well, we don't know yet. It's, it's uh, blah, blah, blah. I haven't really got the two firmer thoughts there, but I think it's probably going to be something like increased membership of, of the UN Security Council. And I thought, well, that's... That's amazing. And I said, so this is actually, you're going, to, you're going to take this on? And he said, yeah, I think you'll probably hear something fairly soon from the administration. So there you go, you've got a scoop. And we've got a scoop tomorrow. Please nobody write that tonight because it's coming out tomorrow in the paper. Because <laughs> uh, I was just as surprised as everyone else. But I thought, that's really interesting. Now, if, it, if it's just more members on the UN Security Council, um, okay, more permanent members, if the veto... Sorry, if it's just more members, is that good enough? Well, probably not, because the veto is everything, as we, as we know. But maybe, just maybe, this is... If we're not shaking the snow dome, perhaps we're just, we're just picking it up. And the debate that will follow, if somebody of the gravitas of the US administration says, we need to have a conversation about the UN Security Council, that might just shake the snow dome, and we might get it somewhere. Just to repeat, for those that haven't heard, heard me, very briefly, in my view, the United Nations was set up and the Security Council was set up at the end of the Second World War with one purpose in mind, and that was to stop a Third World War. And it's done that job brilliantly for 80-odd years, but the, the way it stopped that was by stopping activity. And you would occasionally get the flare-up of, of a Rwanda or a Bosnia, Srebrenica, and, and you know, a Syria and a, and a Ukraine. So it, did not have the, it hasn't got the framework to be able to stamp out these brush fires that are incredibly violent and now at odds with where humanity is in the 21st century. So the UN has done a great job, now needs to change. I think 
the, the constructs, it just needs something different. The veto has to go, the permanency needs to go. This, this idea that basically says you've got nuclear weapons, you're, you're in, and if not, then you know, get to the back. So it just needs to change. Do that too, too much, too fast, and that, that could be damaging for world security. But something needs to happen. And maybe, just maybe, this administration is going to do something significant in the near future. But Thank I've, got, you. I've got my story, so there we go. I'm happy. Thank you very much, Tom. You've also done, a, like the UN, you've done a great job, but you've left our other panellists just with about a minute each to make their final thoughts. Um, so, Kim Kay. I was in Kiev last week. I think it is important, actually, to recognize uh, that in war we see uh, some of the most hard of human activity, but also some of the most heroic uh, and most amazing and ennobling. I really think that the creativity, uh, resilience, resolve with which the Ukrainian armed forces and the people of Ukraine have waged uh, this war is remarkable. I think that that creativity and ingenuity remains 18 months on. I think that it would be wise uh, for all of us not to underestimate the fighting spirit and the political will of Ukraine. Thank you, Dom and Kim. Elliot Cohen. So tomorrow night, uh, my family and I will begin observing the uh, Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah which is both a joyous and a a solemn holiday. And the most poignant prayer of that day begins by that this is when it's determined who will live, who will die, who will perish by fire, who by water, who in a timely way and who in an untimely way. But it ends with a call to action. And I think there's something very powerful for me at this season of the year, thinking about Ukraine. Terrible things have happened. Terrible things will continue to happen. There are things that we cannot control. And so it is easy to fall into a kind of fatalism. And I sometimes think I detect that in some of the commentary on uh, on Ukraine. And I don't think we're allowed to do that. First, I think it's, you know, as a judgment, it's misplaced. But even whether or not you think that, I think there's really this moral imperative that those of us who are not Ukrainians, who are part of the liberal democratic world, have not to give up the fight, not to go slack, and to do whatever it is that we can do. And that will be different things for for different people. It may be working in aid, it may be leaning on people in the government to do things. It could be a whole range of activities. But that for me is, is is the key thing, that we in the West, kind of live up to those quite remarkable Ukrainians that we've met and do everything we can until they succeed. Thank you very much, Elliot Cohen. Francis Stanley, the very final thoughts. Um, I also want to bring it back to the Ukrainians. I remember many years ago, I had a history teacher who told me a story, and it was that in 1944, just before D-Day, the uh, city of Caen was being bombed by the Allies. And of course, there were a lot of French people there, and... The bombs fell, the bombs dropped, and when the Allies were liberating Caen several weeks later, they uncovered a cellar. 
And in the cellar was the body of a man. And he had a piece of paper clasped in his hand. And the soldiers that uncovered his body read the letter. And it simply said, I've waited years for my freedom. And I know that the Allied bombs that are about to bring it have taken my life. But I die happy. And I die knowing that my country is about to be free. Long live France, long live the Allies. Now, my teacher said, isn't that amazing people used to think like that? And I would have thought, yes. And I did think yes for a very, very long time. And I was cynical. But the Ukrainians have made me believe that again. And they've made me think that I would like to be able to write a message like that if ever I were in that circumstances again. So I'm grateful to the Ukrainians for that. Well, thank you, Francis, Elliot, Kim and Dom. Uh, before we move to our Q&A, I would say just if, you've in, if you find what we do interesting uh, and fruitful, the journalism that The Telegraph does, please, if you're not already, please do subscribe. Please do follow us uh, across social media or on YouTube. Read the website, read our colleague, um, Roland Oliphant, who's out in Ukraine at the moment. Um, and you'll have heard him call into the podcast when he can. I'm not entirely sure where he is today. He usually doesn't give his movements um, because, well, for security reasons. So we think of Roland and we hope he's safe and thank him for his reporting. Uh, but if you can, please do subscribe and continue to follow. Thank you very much for your attention. We'll move to a Q&A now. All right, so if you'd like to ask a question, please just raise your hand, uh, say your name, and questions, not comments, Oh, please. and let us know where you've come from oh, as where well. Where you come from, yeah. Hello, my name is Joel. I'm from uh, Manassas, about uh, 45 minutes from here. And uh, my question is, uh, where do you think the cynicism is coming from? I've heard this statement, you know, it's just one corrupt country fighting another. And I grew up on stories like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, you know, that was inspirational so much that uh, my firstborn daughter was named Lucy. And, you know, to me this is a story of people defending their homeland against evil. And yet, particularly in America, I think it's, there's a cynical aspect of it's just everybody's kind of evil and taking sides has no merit. So where, where do you think that source is of cynicism? Well, you know, I think, you know, again, first on the whole, I'd say the American people have been remarkably supportive of Ukraine all things considered. And again, I'll, I'll fall back on the fact that their political leaders have not been making the case to them. I, I, you don't, I don't expect average Americans to care as much about international affairs as, say, I do. I, I also think, you know, we need to understand first that this is coming at the end of a very sour period in our internal politics. And I think that bleeds over, unfortunately, into how we think about a place like Ukraine. I also think Look, isolationism has very deep roots in this country. You know, if you had asked people, let's say if you had asked people in the 1920s or 1930s, should we come to the rescue of these guys if they're at war with uh, Germany? People would have said, absolutely not. You know, it was a terrible mistake to get involved in World War I. They're filled with imperial machinations, you know, which are run out of the main offices of the Telegraph. So I think there. I think that it's not. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't entirely surprise me. The very. The, there's one more thing too, which is it is remarkable to me how much even in some ways, particularly expert observers like Russian historians and so on, bought the Russian Ukraine Russian narrative about 
Ukraine, that Ukraine is not really a country, you know, that this was, okay, yeah, this is where sort of Russia got its start and then moved on. This is just not true. I mean, they, you know, we have two great historians of Ukraine in this country, Serhiy Plokhy at Harvard and Timothy Snyder, who has a wonderful, by the way, a wonderful series of lectures, uh, which you can get for free on uh, YouTube and podcasts and so on. And I, I really commend it to people, but, but we kind of bought that narrative. What's more disturbing is the people who we rely on to interpret that part of the world for us, they also bought that, bought that narrative. So I think a whole bunch of things have come together, but you gotta, you gotta find it. And uh, by the way, I read those, the Narnia books to my kids, I don't know how many times, so I'm with you. Hi, I'm Mary Lee O'Brien from North Carolina. My kind of related to what you're saying, Elliot, how do you think the people of Crimea will react once they are liberated? Are there some loyalties still to Russia there? Are they going to have a conflict there? Or are they going to welcome with open arms? Thank you very much for your question. I, maybe Dom or Kim would like to take that? Well, I'm no expert to be, to be blunt, but I, I don't think it would be... I, I don't think it would be an open arms thing because there's, Russia has populated it heavily in the last eight years... I think there will be, and there and in the and in the eastern regions as well, it will be there will be very testing social conditions. I think, I think it would be. I mean, I, I don't expect it to be an insurgency or anything on that kind of scale. But I think there will be some. The the politics will come thick and fast when when peace allows it. I think. I'm a, from Northern Virginia, retired Navy, uh, so I have a Navy question. If the Russian Black Sea fleet is neutralized, can Putin remain in power with essentially the crown jewel of his navy gone? That's a fascinating question. I'm sure there'll be answers here, but Francis Sterling... I just have one thing to say on that, because I'm, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on that, but I was speaking to somebody yesterday who said that uh, the Black Sea fleet is no longer safe anyway. So this idea that you know, uh, it, it poses a threat, is it, something of a, of a narrative that we need to question. The fact is, with the weaponry that Ukraine has been given, the Black Sea is already imperiled strategically for the Russians and has major defence implications for them. And so there have to be very big questions asked as to what the defensive utility of Crimea actually is for Russia now. And the reason it's relevant to the West is if we believe the Russian narrative that Crimea is sacred for defensive reasons, right, which is what Putin used the justification for going to Crimea in 2014, then we are, in a sense, playing back a narrative he wants us to believe. But the fact is, with the weaponry the Ukrainians have been given now, the Black Sea Fleet is done. So Crimea is just another part of the territory, arguably, that the Ukrainians should want to liberate. At least that is the view from somebody whose opinion I trust, and maybe you'll hear them on the podcast soon. Thank you, Francis. Dom, would you like to come in on that at all? Yeah, just quickly. I think I think Ukraine can retake Crimea and without a sort of full frontal invasion from from infantiers. I mean, look at how Crimea is resupplied, especially three ways. There's the Kirsch Bridge um, to the east. There's Sevastopol Harbour, which keeps getting whacked, and then there's the the land corridor, mostly rail, but but road as well, down through the the north coast along the the north of the Sea of Azov. So as Ukraine is is, is steadily either denying Sevastopol Harbour and the Kursk Bridge or saying, use them, but 
I, I can reach out and touch you anytime I like, then that increases Russia's reliance upon that, uh, that northern corridor. And that is increasingly coming into range of uh, normal artillery. So not so, not so much the, the storm shadows and the, you know, the tackums if, they, if and when they go. But once it's in range of normal artillery, then they've got real problems. So it just, it's going to become a massive logistical headache for uh, Russia if that is if that pressure is, is continued. It's like boiling a frog. And eventually, as Francis says, Putin will come up with, so he'll just construct an argument. He's a dictator. He can do what he likes. He can just suddenly turn around and say, you know what, actually, it wasn't about Crimea after all. It was all about whatever, you know, pick, pick your bit of land. But he can just say, no, we're, we're out. And uh, they're not going to turn around and say, but I, I thought you were... You, uh, he can do what he likes. Within reason, I mean, OK, it, 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 there is a... a a very strong cultural spot, but he he will, he will find a way out once he realizes that it's not. It's probably better to to decide to make a gesture of goodwill as they've done before, rather than see Ukraine take it militarily. No, I think Crimea is exceptionally vulnerable to to Ukrainian advances right now. Uh, Michael Dechana, Falls Church, Virginia. Um, if in the next or following Ukrainian offensive, a large contingent of Russian forces are enveloped and captured like the German Sixth Army at Stalingrad. What would that mean for, one, the Russian war effort? And what would it mean for those Russians in a you know, post-conflict? Would they be... And a, a, a two part of that is like both in terms of like war crime trials and what would the legal obligation be to return those captured Russians to Russia post-war and what, what would they likely face there? So, I, look, I think that's a very important question. What we are observing on the battlefield right now is the Ukrainians actually making gains uh, at the expense of Russian forces that are taking serious combat losses, uh, not surrendering en masse. Uh, And, of course, we observed last year that sometimes Russian forces advance rearwards uh, faster than they advance forwards. Um, And, uh, you know, there is... There's a reason some folks who are standing on the lines uh, are trained and capable of fighting, and there are folks behind them uh, who are helping to make sure that they don't run away. So I, I, the reason I think that uh, your question is good and valuable is that it actually brings up the fact uh, that there are laws and norms of war uh, and that it is very important uh, that the Ukrainians do follow them. But I don't think that the contingency that you have presented is the one that's likely to unfold. Rather, uh, I think that we will see continued Russian combat losses. I think we will see pressure on the rear and on the supply lines. And then finally, uh, I think that as that pressure increases, we may actually see some restoration of maneuver on the battlefield. Hi, uh, Tanner Douglas Cole from Toledo, Ohio. So many of the troops that are uh, being used to conduct this genocidal war are recruited from non-majority Russian areas or ethnic minorities. So I was curious if you could give us an update as far as ethnic tensions in Russia and potentially, I know earlier in the war, uh, these people were blamed for the atrocities, potentially if you could speak in more detail about that. 
Yeah, I th I, thank you. I think um, it's, it's a terrific question, and there is a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, potential fracture as uh, the ultra-nationalists uh, who are embodied by, uh, not represented by, but embodied by figures such as Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the late former head of Wagner, or uh, some of the other ultranationalist figures, they raise tensions against uh, minority groups within Russia. That is to their advantage uh, in, in many respects. So Putin's regime is not without fracture and not without vulnerability. Two, conscription season is upon us. It is the time of year when Putin has to uh, make his decisions about annual uh, conscription and annual mobilization. So there is actually a recruitment, not a recruitment, a conscription coming. Conscription has proved Putin's Achilles heel. He does not have the combat forces uh, in the field that he needs to sustain a long war. Uh, he made the mistake of thinking that he would be in Kiev uh, in 72 hours uh, at the beginning of the war and do, doing Putin-like high fives. And these periods of conscription are periods of great political tension for him uh, that actually accelerate pressures on him from ultra-nationalists uh, and other parties. I raise that because we're thinking a lot right now about the election year here in the United States, but there are actually probably two other really important elections ahead uh, in 2024. One, uh, Ukraine presidential election. We'll see whether that goes forward uh, and how, but the other is Putin. Uh, Putin faces his own election, and he has generally refused to mobilize uh, and conscript uh, as much force as he needs because he fears uh, what that will do to his own political power. And so we can, we can watch uh, how Putin handles this upcoming conscription, but I don't think we're going to see hordes of Russians or even ethnic minorities of Russia actually recruited. There are not hordes of people to be conscripted in Russia. It's too dangerous for Putin to do that. And that is one of the weaknesses that he has, that he's shown uh, that political elites in Russia have exploited, and that the Ukrainians, through their defiance, their resilience, and their strong fighting, have exposed. And so it is why I remain confident that the myth that there are Russian hordes out there is just a myth, and why I remain confident uh, that... The Ukrainians, even though they are outnumbered, can continue to wage and indeed win this war. Well, thank you so much for all of your questions. Thank you so much to all of our panellists. Uh, we've reached the end of our time today. Um, thank you so much to the British Embassy here in Washington for hosting us. Thank you so much to our Telegraph team, uh, who, as you'll see, are around the room. So we've got Jamie, Giles, Florence and Kate at the back. Thank you so much, guys. We couldn't have done this without you. Thank you, of course, to all the Ukrainians who speak to us every day and tell us about their stories in, in, in this awful time for them. Thank you very much. Well, I usually say thank you very much for listening. This is a bit different, isn't it? <laughs> thank you very much for listening to us and watching us.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.